0: in order to take an advancement, you either need an algorithm advancement and a high reduction in noise or an algorithm advancement and an increase in the amount of data, right? So there's always a combination of two to see an innovation. And right now, I don't see us getting a huge increase in the amount of data. And because it's historic, the noise is the noise. And so really, I think, you know, we need to make advances both on the algorithmic side, but also on the data set size side.
1: Welcome to How AI Happens, a podcast where experts explain their work at the cutting edge of artificial intelligence. You'll hear from AI researchers, data scientists, and machine learning engineers as they get technical about the most exciting developments in their field and the challenges they're facing along the way. I'm your host, Rob Stevenson, and we're about to learn how AI happens. Here with me today on How AI Happens is the Chief AI Officer over at Health, Brandon Allgood. Brandon, welcome to the podcast. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Really pleased to have you. You have got on a plane to visit the labs, right, of your company? Is that where you are this week? Yeah, today I'm in Lexington where we have a big set of our labs. What do you like to get up to once you are kind of rallying the troops there at the laboratory? You know,
0: I sit in front of a screen all day most of the time. And so it's nice to actually walk through a laboratory and see equipment and talk with the people that are generating the data and making sure that we're all connected. Everybody understands, you know, why we're generating certain data sets, how we might improve data sets, how we might improve speed, just to feed the beast that is the machine learning and the Opal platform.
1: Taking a break from screens to, to do some science, right? Have some real conversations. Good. Glad to hear it. Well, Before we get too deep in the weeds here, you mentioned the Opal system. I want to make sure we set some context for you and the company. We maybe learn a little bit about you, Brandon, your background, how you wound up at Vallo, and then we can get into the company as well, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of come from a bit of a non-traditional place, which I guess is pretty typical for People in machine learning and AI, I mean, when I was in school, it, it was a very under-taught or underappreciated topic. So my PhD is actually in cosmology. I wanted to be an academic. You don't normally do that if you don't want to be an academic, but quickly got dissatisfied with academia, landed squarely in Silicon Valley. And for me, my life and passion is around the intersection of large-scale computing, machine learning, and science. And what I found out very quickly is that I personally studied the science of last century. I believe the science of this century is biology. And really, that's where the frontier is. That's where the real unknowns are. And because of the nature of biology versus physics, physics is a really a reductionist science. Biology is was, I think, hurt by physics being a reductionist science and us people believing they could apply that to biology, you know, sequence a human genome. Now, you know, everything will be all diseases will be able to find cures for, right? You can see how that breaks down. And so now what we have in front of us, you know, this century is the combination of biology and not so coincidentally combined with the computing power and the power of machine learning. So bringing those together. So I've spent most of my career for the last 17 years working at that intersection, starting a number of small companies and nonprofits. So at Valo, Valo is kind of a culmination of my experiences and the experiences of other executives here at Valo. So one of the things you come to appreciate after spending time here is that drug discovery and development is death by a thousand cuts. And while you can build a, you know, a solution a point solution that is the best point solution in the world that essentially reduces the time of that particular part of the drug discovery and development pipeline to zero and can guarantee everything it turns out that if you truly want to have an impact on probability of success of a drug cost and time to market, point solutions are not really going to move the needle because that program or that drug then gets killed by every other orthogonal thing that happens, and really the way that you You want to approach this and have the impact that I think machine learning can have on this industry is you need to be able to build out a system, build out a capability that attacks everything along the value chain from target ID through chemical design and into clinical development. And that is what the Opal platform does here at Valo. I think the other thing that came in at about the same time, and if you're in startups, you'll understand what ends up happening is startups and successful startups ultimately can point back to a number of synergies. And one of those other synergies is human data, right? Longitudinal human data is not something you can go into the lab and generate and generate any quicker than it takes to, you know, than our lives. Someone had to 15, 20 years ago say, hey, let's start collecting this EMR data set, this longitudinal data in electronic form, assuming we will be able to use it in the future. And certain institutions around the world started doing that around 20, 15 years ago. And so now we have some pretty amazing data sets. And what VALO has done is we've developed exclusive relationships with these suppliers where we can get this very large amount of longitudinal data, which then allows us to really dig in on disease and disease progression. And so I think it's a culmination of these factors that ultimately has resulted in in us founding Valo and developing the Opal platform.
1: When you say the approach that was needed was attacking every stage along the way, do you just mean optimizing every step? What does the operative word attack mean there? So it's interesting in certain aspects, right? So I mean, if you look at the you know the entirety of the drug discovery and
0: development pipeline, that and the science that's being done there, and the approaches that are being applied there, those have been developed historically, largely since the 1950s and even before, and have been developed in a longitudinal way. So, for example, you know the innovations in the past have been things like high throughput screening, which is really about Applying a larger shotgun to a shotgun approach, right? And so what you find is there's been a lot of innovations, but it's been towards a certain type of drug and a certain type of a prospect. So for example, most of the system, at least in the discovery phase, was designed for blockbuster drugs, right? It was designed for blockbuster drugs that attack what i would say low-hanging fruit so statins for example statins lower cholesterol you find a inhibit an enzyme so statin inhibits an enzyme and inhibiting an enzyme is actually a fairly simple process relatively speaking i mean i don't want to underplay what people have done in the past but it is a fairly simple low-hanging fruit process and then once you lower cholesterol you can make billions of dollars so it's okay to spend a lot of money and have a lot of inefficiencies as long as you're insured a billion dollar plus drug. But what we found is now the, all of the low hanging fruit is gone and we're starting to tackle diseases like cancer, like cardiovascular disease, many of these more complex diseases that where we're going to take more of a rifle approach and potentially have smaller patient populations. What that then requires is, you know, in some cases, higher efficiency, and in some cases, higher accuracy. So I'd say it's not one approach overall. Some places it is efficiency, but other places, it's taking a very different approach, a much more thoughtful approach. And that's one of the things I would say at Valo, 50% of the effort is in building the algorithms and the, and the platform. And I'd say 50% of the effort is thinking about if you were to start over from scratch right now, and you were faced with human health without any legacy issues, how would you change the process? How would you make science and data science interact together in different ways? And so I would say it's both
1: increasing
0: efficiency, but also really just questioning the process.
1: Is that approach to machine learning limited to healthcare, just given the way that traditional pharmaceutical development has happened? Or would you say you could apply that philosophy just about anywhere? I think you can apply that philosophy in many
0: industries, right? If you look at how innovation happens most recently in the auto industry, right? The real innovation doesn't come from, you know, making gasoline cars more efficient, right? It was really by thinking in a different direction, right? It wasn't really about, it's, a you know, about re-examining the question and you're re-examining the problem, the fundamental problem in with a new set of tools, with the transportation system and you know, the Ubers and the links and the Lyfts of the world, again, it was about just kind of looking at the fundamental problem and thinking, you know, how would we solve this today? Forget all the legacy. Instead of improving the legacy, is there a way to really innovate and break things? And that's the way we think about it here at Valo.
1: So what role would you say data and machine learning are playing in traditional pharmaceutical companies? And, and what is sort of the, the disruption that Valo offers? Right. So I think it goes back to exactly that. I think if you look at most
0: pharmaceutical companies, and I would actually say all pharmaceutical companies, data science is seen as a, as a support tool, as you pointed out, as a way of making existing processes slightly more efficient. They play an advisory role. I would say at Valo, the Opal platform and the machine learning and the data science we see those as fundamental, right? While certain investors, certain individuals will look at Balo and say, okay, well, they've got two phase two clinical trials. They've got a pipeline of drugs. That's their value. And in reality, that is, I don't want to scoff at that, that there's definitely value in the in the drugs we're bringing forward. But internally, we believe and our investors believe that the value is really in the Opal platform and that those programs are validations and test beds for improving the Opal platform because it's essentially why would you put all of your money in the eggs instead of the chicken, right? I mean, it's kind of a you know we're investing in the chicken that can lay the golden eggs, not necessarily the eggs themselves. And so I would say that takes a different mindset and a different approach. And I would say that's really the value at value or what we call the value add.
1: I like that value add. So we've made glancing. References here to the OPAL system, I want to make sure we sink our teeth into it a little bit. Would you mind sharing about what the system is and how it's being utilized inside and outside VALO?
0: Yeah, so we've mentioned the longitudinal patient data, but I think more at the core of what OPAL does is not just take in longitudinal patient data, but actually take in longitudinal patient data combine it with multi-omic, so deep multi-omic data, as well as chemistry data. So part of the, I think the advantage of the Opal platform is all of these data sets are together and connected. Unlike in traditional kind of pharma, they're siloed. So there's a core in which these data are allowed to fuse. And what we find is even bringing in public data sets and combining them with our data sets, we can get insights out of those public data sets that others can't currently as i said before we're using this platform to push our internal drug programs forward and the way that we think about that is each of the drug programs we have what the value to us in those drug programs is their ability to validate what we're doing in the platform and this goes back to that perennial problem that i talked about in the beginning when i was running around in traffic with pharma they're often interested in technology but they don't want to be the first to kind of go at it so what we're doing is internally not asking pharma to go off on a limb and believe us we're proving it out we're validating it with the ultimate plan to out to actually make the platform available to the industry we launched logica earlier this year as the first manifestation of that the most mature piece of the platform was our chemical design piece that's what resulted in that joint venture between charles river labs and valo Offering our chemical design system to pharmaceutical companies, to small biotechs, to universities to utilize that to be able to very rapidly go from a target into a highly optimized compound or compound series.
1: So I'm curious what people should be listening for and looking for at their organizations to ensure that they are themselves at a a data-driven organization.
0: Yeah, I would say who's leading the teams? right who's leading the teams and what you'll find if you look at the leader you know the lead of a program or the lead of a team if it's always the clinician or always the medicinal chemist or always the biologist and not the data scientist then you're likely at an organization where data science is in service But if you start to look at, well, wait, you know, a data scientist can lead a program, can be fundamental in decision making, right? Where decision making does not just rest with the traditional scientists, but rests with either a shared group of people or with data science. So, for example, you know, I know in other companies... And other pharmaceutical companies, there are data scientists that have a lot of ideas and want to drive programs forward, but are often shut down. Here at Valo. if data scientists have good ideas, we let them run with them. You know, we let them commission experiments. <laughs> That's not generally the way that a traditional organization would work.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It's really as simple as who gets to make decisions, where is investment happening, what behaviors are rewarded, that sort of thing. That's not even really a technical question it's just sort of follow the money in a way follow the activity follow who gets the trust absolutely and it's
0: pretty interesting if you think about it and the money pieces is, is even more interesting there are these traditional metrics within financing and my background is not finance so I don't want to overstep my bounds here but there are traditional metrics that CFOs within pharma use to track whether capital is being spent properly right what's interesting is those metrics are almost the opposite of the metrics that CFOs use in technology. And so we've often had sat down and had discussions about capital deployment and how we think about capital deployment, not from a pharma perspective and not necessarily from a tech perspective, but as a blend. And and I'm not going to say it's easy. It takes some trade-offs, right? Do you want to invest in that clinical trial? Or do you want to invest in the platform? And I think it just takes a lot of really smart people sitting down and thinking about where the short-term value is and where the long-term value is and where we want to invest.
1: I'd like to go back to something you said about the longitudinal data, or lack thereof in lots of cases, and how really only 10 to 15 years maybe of data is available in some of these cases. Are we at a point now where it is more reliable for you to source this data, or do you still expect synthetic data to play a part moving forward?
0: Oh, well, I think those are two different questions. I think Again, with data science, there's never enough data. It doesn't matter if you're in imaging, if you're in NLP, but undoubtedly in human data, there's definitely not enough data. There's definitely not enough diversity of data in terms of genetic diversity, in terms of ethnic diversity. We can source pockets of data and we have found some pretty diverse sets, but there are still large parts of the world's populations that are lacking. And if we're talking about human health, we have to be thinking about all humans and ensure that we get data that is representative of the human race and of those that are most likely to to suffer from certain diseases on the other side in terms of synthetic data you know there is the problem you know we run into privacy issues all of the time right and privacy issues whether it's under GDPR or HIPAA or some other some other compliance and Oftentimes, because these are data from individuals and we want to respect the privacy, and the organizations that are collecting and offering those data for use want to you know do what 's best for patients and so you know, often, what that means is these these human data sets are are siloed and have rigorous controls around them, which then inhibits inhibits science. Right. So there's always a balance between those things. Now, if we could get to a point, and there, are, you know, some pretty interesting recent advances in in the application of of transformers to EMR in our ability to to generate EMR data sets that are synthetic but representative of the underlying training set from which they were pulled. We're not quite there, certainly not in in the case of, of rarer diseases and or even in diseases that are less rare, like many types of cardiovascular disease these diseases are largely what i would call syndromes and so the while you might be able to get synthetic data that represents the bulk you're not going to get the resolution within those patients within those subgroups within the patient set such that you can really start to drill into the to fundamental biological dysfunctions leading to those syndromes so i think absolutely synthetic data is would be hugely helpful in our in our ability
1: to develop algorithms and apply them. But that synthetic data is perhaps hamstrung by the lack of existing human data?
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's hamstrung by both. Yeah. Can you get a... So number one is is really the... I think we're still not there in terms of algorithms. So, you know, what you find for in other cases where you're able to generate synthetic data, I mean, obviously... Dali 2 is like the big deal right now. Look at how many training data points they took to do that, right? And to build a model of that size, right? You're never at least, well, I'm not going to say never. Right now, you're not going to find a human data set that's anywhere close that size. I would say there's always three competing things that happen and inhibit certain problems, right? Size of data set, amount of noise, and algorithm sophistication. You have to have two of these increase, well, the noise should decrease. But the point is, is that in order to take an advancement, you either need an algorithm advancement, and a high reduction in noise or an algorithm advancement, and an increase in the amount of data, right? So there's always a combination of two to see an innovation. And right now, I don't see us getting a huge increase in the amount of data. And because it's historic, the noise is the noise. And so really, I think, you know, we need to make advances both on the algorithmic side, but also on the data set size side. And again, that then bleeds into, into the concern about bias and and kind of needing more data that's more representative of the human population.
1: What makes you say we're not there algorithmically?
0: Well, I mean, the efforts currently, the latest publications on archives are not, I mean, they're promising in their ability to produce synthetic data. But you know, given even some of the larger data sets in the United States, they're still just not there. That's, I mean, that's what I would say.
1: Just not sufficiently advanced or not enough of them. What's the state of the development? I would say it's not, it's not sufficiently advanced. I think like, you know, like I said, transformers are starting to help. One of the, one of the big problems
0: here is the heterogeneity of the human data and also the temporal nature and the missingness, right? Again, those are, the heterogeneity of the data is, it leads to noise. The missingness is a source of noise, right? And then the temporality of the data, I think we are getting better at representations. Most of the representations that are applied in at least longitudinal human data are largely derived from signal processing where there's temporal or from NLP, there are tweaks on that, but it is its own unique data set where we have these different types of data, there are diagnostic codes, there are labs, there are drugs, you know, there are different types of interventions, and those are spread out temporally over time. And so, you know, if I think about is there a similar data set or a, a data set problem out there with a similar aspect that isn't encumbered by privacy, or you can get larger data sets, like if If we could get to that, if we could find that data set, we might be able to develop representations that are better. But none of them come to mind. So we're often borrowing from these other data sets and problems that have very similar properties but aren't quite there. And so we, we really need to continue to invest more in specifically algorithms specifically designed for longitudinal patient data.
1: Right, right. As you say, a couple of the challenges with regard to data here are the lack of longitudinal data, you come into privacy issues, there's also plenty of historical social reasons why there's less data on certain groups. Let's maybe like sail past some of those problems and just like indulge a world where we have much more representative data collection. Once that's the case, you're still a far cry from developing a bias-free solution, right? What were some of your approaches to ensuring fairness and rooting out bias in data sets? Yeah, so
0: the answer to that is ensuring that your data science teams are as diverse as possible. You know, we suffer right now from a lack of diversity of data. But then on the other side, we also suffer as a field lack of diversity in our scientists, in our data scientists, right? And so I think one of the things that that we try and do is focus on DEI when we're thinking about hiring and ensuring that the teams that are working on these data sets are diverse. I constantly think about diversity. I'm constantly thinking about bias. But even though I think about that a lot, I have missed things in data sets that colleagues who had different life experiences experienced you know opened my eyes to that i never would have thought when i never would have saw because i didn't have that other life experience and so i think in all cases when we're dealing with data we need to have Diverse opinions. We need to have diversity in the data scientists that are working on these problems, and I think that is our biggest weapon. I mean, there are tr- more traditional ways of reweighting training sets, looking at covariates, looking at count, you know counterfactuals, and trying to develop you know trying to deal with it algorithmically. But really, that diversity in team members is going to pay off ten times more than data science tricks.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. That's not just the solution in in developing algorithms either like having a diverse set of perspectives right as you say having your eyes open to life experiences you didn't have and would not have considered even if you were really really working as hard as possible to try and get outside of yourself and and remove bias it's not something that would occur to you what do you mean when you say like what is the value of reweighing a training set
0: yeah so reweighting a training set is what you want to be able to do right so so again the fundamental statistical kind of basis of machine learning or assumption is that your training set and your test set are pulled from the same underlying distribution. And we know that that's almost never the case because your training set by fiat is historical and history is not always representative of the future, right? And so you're always going to, in in cases of human data, in cases of even financial data, you know, these kinds of data that there's always, you know, the future is always going to look different than the past. And so you're always going to have to continue to kind of reweight based on the future. In the case of healthcare, what we find is the vast majority of the pristine data, you know, not surprisingly come from areas where there's a rich population, a wealthier population, which tends to be less diverse. And so what we then often unfortunately need to do is go back and try and reweight the data sets to be more representative. But there's still, there's only so much you can do there in terms of controlling it. You might change that data set that you have to make it more ethnically representative by reweighting the different ethnic backgrounds. But the problem is, is there are correlates in that Poor populations might have a different ethnic diversity, but that's also associated with poor nutrition, for example. And you can't make up for that poor nutrition. You don't get that when you reweight on that richer patient population. You might get a different, you know, a change in the ethnic weighting, which might correlate with genetic factors, which is great. But it's not going to correlate with socioeconomic factors. And so, you know, this is why reweighting is at best a partial solution.
1: One tool in a varied and long tool belt, I suppose, right?
0: yeah I mean honestly it's this is part of why I also have started a, a, like nonprofits part of starting some of these nonprofits is to help governments and to help governmental organizations think about data, think about these problems, and play a role in in helping us find those data sets, helping us get those data sets because it is going to take a larger, broader government-based effort in order for us to get into many of those communities, convince them that giving their data is going to ultimately benefit them, right? And so, that's, again, why I've got kind of my commercial side, but i also very active on a number of nonprofits as well as starting a few.
1: Well, Brandon, we are creeping up on optimal podcast length here, but before I let you go, I wanted to ask you to consider perhaps healthcare or, or drug development, but really anything you like what is going on in the space of AI and machine learning that has you truly excited and, and inspired to continue working in this space?
0: I would say, yeah, a couple of things again, I think I mentioned it before you know I think recently we've punched through so for a while there I think a lot of think a lot of people were predicting that deep learning had kind of reached an asymptote in its ability to make predictions to improve on existing standards. I think more recently, with some of these large language models, these large image and generation models like like I mentioned before, DALI Two, and the innovation of transformers, I think you know we've seen a you know there's kind of there was a lull, there was a bit of an asymptote, and then we've seen them increase in performance. That's exciting to me now, unfortunately, much of that is not applicable to where we're working, which is in healthcare which is a very like i said like we've said before is a much more of a low data environment and so there i would say one shot no shot type learning where you might have a lot of data in one area but no data or very little data in another that's also been exciting in our ability to do transfer learning and like i said no and one shot type learning on top of that i think the work around generative modeling. So GANs and others in order to facilitate an active learning loop, which what we are leveraging, for example, in our logica and our preclinical work has also been very exciting and I think very promising in its ability to push us forward, especially in these kind of lower data set environments.
1: That's fantastic. Brandon, thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing all of this. I've loved learning from you today. This has been a fantastic conversation.
0: Yeah, thanks, Rob. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: How AI Happens is brought to you by Sama. Sama provides accurate data for ambitious AI, specializing in image, video, and sensor data annotation and validation for machine learning algorithms in industries such as transportation, retail, e-commerce, media, medtech, robotics, and agriculture. For more information, head to sama.com.